Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. triennial reading cycle, which means we read the middle, we are with the rest of the triennial world, reading the middle third of every portion, so that we can stay on the same portion with the rest of the Jewish world, but are not uh, compelled to read annually the whole Torah, knowing we just don't, it's too much, Um, So, but we want to stay with the rest of the world that is on the annual cycle on this portion, so we just read a third of it every year, and we're in the second third. And why, I don't have to do it that way, right? I can pick whatever I want to teach y'all. So, um, again, the reason I, I read on a triennial cycle and have been doing so for 18 years, um, is so that I am forced to engage with more material than I might otherwise choose to engage with. For instance, this morning's hunk of Torah that is the triennial division is one that I might choose to avoid. If I had my druthers. Um, but of course it's always fruitful when I have to figure out how to approach it this year in a way that feels meaningful to me and I, uh, I hope you find something in it as well. So we are beginning at chapter 7. We are going to begin at verse 8 um, just to orient us a little bit. Um, we are after the commissioning of Moshe which we read this year. So we are past the intro portion of the book of Exodus, which sets the stage for the commissioning of Moses uh, and his hooking up with his brother Aaron, who's going to be his partner in, uh, in leading the people. Is there a bar mitzvah in the house? Yes, there is. It's good to see you. Um, so a wonderful tradition some folks have who are regular Torah study attendees. They bring their bar or bat mitzvah on the Shabbat of their ceremony. They bring them to our Friday morning Torah study so that they study, they see adults studying their parsha uh, on their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah weekend. So the second one of Lisa Simon over there to do that. So... Um, so we've got the commissioning of Moses uh, and his his partnership with his brother Aaron uh, to basically become the spokespeople for God before Pharaoh, right? This is not about Moses. This is about God. Moses is but the mouthpiece for God uh, to deliver the message that God demands the release of the Hebrews from slavery, We'll recall that Moshe was raised in the palace. Yes? How long has he been away from the palace? 40 years. years. We tend to skip over a big hunk of Moshe's development, um, which I think is is something we should figure out a way to address. We, We have this image of Moshe as a baby in that whole story. Then... All of a sudden, he's grown up, which is kind of how it happens in the Torah, too. He's grown up, and then he's in the palace, and then he has this moment where he loses his temper, and but takes time to look both ways to make sure nobody's looking, um, kills the taskmaster, flees, right, and then encounters a bush. <laughs> it's not exactly the right. So, but if we ha- if we put ourselves in just the, the literary imagination of the tellers of this story, Moshe's from baby to killing that 
Taskmaster is 40 years. He's 40 years in the palace. That's a long time. Right? That, that's a lot of your kind of coming into your identity, questioning who you are. Now we have adolescence. They didn't back then, but still I'm sure the same processes were going on. Like, who am I? How do I fit in the world? What is my relationship to power? What is my relationship to wealth, to resources, to control? To So he's dealing with all of that, and all of that comes to him as a prince of Egypt. It's only when he commits something, an act that now makes him a fugitive... He doesn't ask for that change. I mean, he brings it on himself, but he doesn't. It's not something he thought through, right? He now is a fugitive. How long does he spend in Midian with Yitro, his father-in-law, because he marries Tsipora? Yitro, the high priest of Midian. How long does he stay there? Forty years. A whole nother life for Moshe. What is he doing in Midian? What does he do for his father-in-law? Shepherd. He's a shepherd. Reuben, why is it important that Moshe is a shepherd for 40 years? Can you repeat the question? <laughs> why is it important that Moshe is a shepherd for 40 years? I only answer when I know the answer. Got it. <laughs> Got it. A good policy, Reuben. I should learn from you. I should learn from you. So, anybody, why, why, why is it important that Moshe is a shepherd for 40 years? It's not an accident that he's in this business. Well, he's, he created a new life for himself and with children and a family, and, and uh, he's part of that culture, he's part of that world, and uh, you know, he doesn't want to. It seems really important that Moshe have another adult developmental experience where he learns, as we see, he yes and no, but he, he learns something about how to think things through differently as he lives with the high priest of Midian. His father-in-law is the high priest of Midian. So he's now in a culture of religion that seems very different from Egypt and Egyptian religion and and his position vis-a-vis Egyptian religion. Who was Pharaoh in the Egyptian religion? God. The God. Moshe is the son of a God. And now has right this whole... Other experience, Laura, you were going to say something about the shepherding business? Well, I mean, it just seems kind of symbolic or metaphor for the next 40 years of shepherding these wayward, you know, willful. Shepherding the wayward, willful. (laughs) (laughs) Hebrews. Right? Meaning, Jews. Right, exactly right. So, you. You cannot be in the ancient Near East and then everything that flows out of that culture. You, you can't be a leader without being a shepherd. You got to be a shepherd. You have to. Who is all of this pointing to? Who are all of these texts of the Torah ultimately pointing to? Do we have any idea when they went to write this? Who is it all pointing to? David. All of this points to David. Okay. It's commissioned by David, we think. So all the stories that are floating around, all these variant traditions of all these different parts of Israel, David is the first to unify the nation-state of Israel. Right? His father, his father um, not his father, Saul battles 
right? To kind of get, be Philistines and kind of, but David is the final one to, to bring together all these variant tribes and have it be a nation state. They need a national history. So you got to take all the stories, the Northern version and the Southern version, right? You got to take the civil war and the war of Northern aggression And you have the great unpleasantness between the states. And you have to put both of those versions in one national history to bring the North and the South together as one nation state. So David is the hero that all of these texts are pointing to. What does David do according to our stories? He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. Of course he is. And he writes poetry. And he writes poetry. And he's gorgeous. And he's gorgeous. <laughs> and he likes to show it off sometimes too, doesn't he? Dancing with only an aphode in front of the ark. So <laughs> and fool around, right, Ruben? Exactly. The excesses of the king. So you have to be a shepherd. So Moses takes these 40 years to learn something else, to learn the next part of what it's going to take to be the leader of the Jewish people. So we skip, we tend to skip over all that. But that, that's really an important balance. Moshe knows about power. He knows about how to use it. He knows access to it. He knows the excesses of it. He knows its attachment to religion. And now he's learned how to take care of vulnerable, like lots of things going on at once. He's got to watch lots of different things in order to serve, in order to take care of vulnerable, willful creatures. And a different relationship to religion and a different relationship to power. How do we know he's exposed to a different relationship to power? Because of when Yitro comes back to visit him later and gives him some advice. We see what Yitro thinks about power, don't we? Yes, we do. So we know something about Yitro only from later. But if we retroject that back here, that's what Moses is marinating in. The wisdom of his father-in-law, who doesn't want to see a centralization of power, but thinks, right, it should be shared. Okay. That's, that's where we have been with Moshe till chapter 7. He's been commissioned by God. He's the reluctant leader. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to do it. And he's going anyway. And he's going to go to Pharaoh. He's going to go back to the palace as a revolutionary. Right? He's going to challenge the authority of the palace, not on his own merit, not on his own sense of his power, but, right, of course, as a representation for the king of kings, the king higher than Pharaoh, the power higher than Pharaoh. We cannot read any of this without reading this as a critique of Egypt, as a critique of its polytheistic um, system, as a kind of tongue-in-cheek poke at Egypt and its power, written by people who were often allies but often antagonized by Egypt, and retrojected very far back. This is not written when, when this would have been the system, right? It's written much later. And so we have to understand who else is Egypt? Who are these authors when they're telling these stories years and years and years and years later? 
Who are they telling these stories about? Who are they writing these stories about? It's not Egypt anymore only. Okay? Egypt was one of the powers of the time. So let's start at 7, 8. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh speaks to you and says, produce your marvel, you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it down before Pharaoh. It shall turn into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh and did just as Adonai had commanded. Aaron cast down his rod in the presence of Pharaoh and his courtiers, and it turned into a serpent. Then Pharaoh, for his part, summoned the sages and the sorcerers, and the Egyptian magician priests, in turn, did the same with their spells. Each cast down his rod, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed their rods. Yet Pharaoh's heart stiffened, and he did not heed them, as Adonai had said. And Adonai said to Moses, Pharaoh is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is coming out to the water, and station yourself before him at the edge of the Nile, taking with you the rod that turned into a snake. And say to him, Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to to you to say, Let my people go, that they may worship me in the wilderness. But you have paid no heed until now. Thus says Adonai, by this you shall know that I am Adonai. See, I shall strike the water in the Nile with the rod that is in my hand, and it will be turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile will die. The Nile will stink, so that the Egyptians will find it impossible to drink the water of the Nile. All right. So, God says to Moshe and Aaron, when Pharaoh speaks to you and says, produce your marvel, you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it down before Pharaoh, it shall turn into a serpent. So, God tells Moshe and Aaron before they even open their mouths, that Pharaoh's going to say, prove it. You claim to come on behalf of some invisible hoo-ha, hoo-ha power, prove it. All right? So God's going to make sure that proof is ready. So he gives Moshe the instruction that he's going to tell Aaron, take your rod, Aaron's rod, and right, and cast it down before Pharaoh, and it's going to turn into a serpent. All right. This word here is not nachash. Nachash is snake. This is tanin. Tanin is a large reptile. Tell me some large reptiles you know. Crocodile. <laughs> Guess what the Nile is filled with? Mm-hmm. Which is why it's unlikely that Pharaoh's daughter was actually going down to the Nile to bathe. <laughs> right? Because there's crocs in the Nile. So, um, so possibly this is really talking about a much scarier, right, thing than a snake. But to this day, there's this tradition of the, um, the Egyptian snake charmers, right, uh, practicing this kind of trick of taking what looks like a stick and they throw it down and it's, ooh, a snake. So it's, this is, it continues to be a theme, uh, a motif in Egypt to this day. Um, so they 
they can take a cobra and like it, they do something so that it kind of goes into a catatonic state where it goes rigid. Um, so it looks like a stick, and then boom, right? It's a snake. So, so it seems that Moses and Aaron need to speak and act in the motif of Egypt. God doesn't say, forget this nonsense with sticks and snakes and whatever. That's just magicians, charmers, those stupid Egyptians, right? We're going to do it differently. God understands. Moshe and Aaron need to prove that they represent a contender, right, in this society. That they need to speak in the symbols, in the reality of the Egyptian court. So remember... When they come before Pharaoh, it's not like you know, they're meeting at a cafe for coffee, right? We have to picture the scene, and many of us who grew up with Charlton Heston can, um, right? That you know, it's a huge palace. It's a it's a reception hall, and Pharaoh's court would have been present. His court. Physician, his court, magicians, his advisors, right? All of the priests and priestesses of all of the gods of Egypt who were whoever's in political favor, right? That's who's present at these encounters. It's not private. And God understands, it seems the character God understands, we got to work with the audience we are. So here we go with the rod and staff turning into a tanin. Then Pharaoh, so, so this is what happens, right? They come before Pharaoh. They did exactly what God commands. And then Pharaoh, for his part, summons the wise men and the sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians in turn. And they did the same with their spells. Each cast down his rod and they turned into serpents. So Pharaoh seems like, <laughs> this is your God. I got this, right? And calls his team in. And they, of course, can perform the exact same trick. Pharaoh seems fairly comfortable and, you know, at ease with the whole situation uh, until what happens next? Aaron's rod swallows their rod. So the the first indication for Pharaoh and his folk that, uh, uh uh-oh, something might be going on, right, that we might have to deal with. But what happens... And the heart of Pharaoh was strengthened. And he did not listen to them. As God had said. Thus begins, thus is triggered the Esther Makot, the Ten catastrophes that will befall Egypt. This is the trigger. Pharaoh has now pulled the trigger. That he, something that, it is a very interesting term. There's lots, as you can imagine, written about it. What is this business? What, what does that mean? His heart was strengthened. Chazak, strong. That's literally the term. Okay. And he, and he didn't listen, as God had said. This seems to be what triggers the ten plagues. The intransigent, in, 
How do you say that word? Intransigence. Thank you. Of Pharaoh is what sets off these chastisements, right? By, by God of Pharaoh. And they are disasters that are going to strike Egypt over the course of Egypt's natural year. And there's lots of essays written on how each of these plagues occurs in a certain month at a certain time that's associated with a certain natural occurrence in Egypt that goes hooey-wacky. And because of that, right, it becomes a plague, right? So some of a good thing is good. Too much of a good thing can wreck your ecosystem. So, so this really is about the ecosystem of Egypt that God kind of pulls the, you know, the wiring on and it just goes and it goes crazy. This is, no one is claiming that any of this is not natural phenomena that happen in Egypt. Not even the authors. Yes, it would be stupid to have a bunch of plagues that had nothing to do with the natural course of the year in Egypt, right? So people say, oh, it's happening. You know, there's a night. And actually the Nile's filled with mud. And, and, and I can show you some of that, how that unfolds, like how they explain this. And it's like, it's a, it's two completely different conversations, right? So this can be explained that the mud comes down from here and it makes the, the water look red and that makes the frogs die. And so they jump out, the ones who are living, and that causes anthrax. So yes, no one's arguing that there is not a way these things could uh, could occur and could cause one another. No one argues that's not a possibility. That's not the point. The point is, each one happens when Moshe throws his staff down or Aaron or raises it over the wall. Right? It, it's not irrelevant to the, the, the natural phenomena of Egypt. It has to be part of the natural phenomena of Egypt or it makes no sense. The point is, this is a power greater than Pharaoh and greater than the gods that are associated with those natural processes. Right? The Nile in Egypt is a god. So can it become so red with red clay that it looks like blood? Yes. That is a natural phenomenon. How our story is about how a force greater than Pharaoh and greater than the God that is the Nile caused that to happen. That means God wins, right? That's an important part of our story that I think we sometimes forget as we treat this as some silly thing over there every Passover that, you know. So Pharaoh's intransigence, intransigence sets off these consequences. And it's going to happen over and over. It's not like all ten happen at once, right? He's given every opportunity after each one to have another one not happen. So this, and this becomes the way that uh, not only Pharaoh, but the Israelites and the Egyptians and everyone who will hear the story is educated about this yod heh vav Right? It is not just a private affair. This is public warfare between Yudhe Vavhe and the gods of Egypt. 
So, we have this first occasion that triggers what happens next. So God says, who is Yudhevave, Eloheha Ivrim, the God of the crossers over, said, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Does that strike anybody's odd? <laughs> so first of all, it's a little suspect. Who wants to worship in the wilderness? Is that what I hear you saying, Linda? It's like nice invitation. <laughs> <laughs> so let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Like what? Like why? Okay. What else is odd about that statement? Because, because what do we say? What do, what do we, what do we mean when we say "let my people go"? Let them be free. Ha! Let them be free. Is that what Moshe is saying? No. Not exactly. Not exactly. It's like you can have them on loan. It's almost like it's an interim thing. There's no time. Let them worship in the wilderness. I mean, they're just allowed to worship for a period of time, and. Well, also, because I'm saying, let them be free so they can do something, not so they can just do whatever they want. Ha, 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 ha. Linda, you point to, for me, the reason we sing Michamocha at every service. You are freed from Egypt, and it's in the Shema, the paragraphs following the Shema. Who am I? I am Yudhei Vafei. And who was that? The one who freed you from Egypt. Right? In order, lihiyot lachem Elohim to be for you a God. The God. I did not free you to be free. I freed you to be my people. What does that mean? How do we translate that? To build a society based on the values, the ethics, the teachings of this people and its understanding of what is just and equitable and right and compassionate not to do whatever you want not to drive SUVs and poison rivers I drive one too it's okay um, <laughs> right it's not you don't I'm not freeing you because the value here is you being free the value here is you being free in order to serve me well, there, there's another problem from Pharaoh's point of view. Uh, these guys are his slaves, his workers, whatever. He's going to let a bunch of his slaves, workers, whatever, go free. What are the rest of the guys going to think? And oh, by the way, they're going to be free to go worship a god when he's the god. I mean, another god? you got a double problem. Pharaoh has lots of problems here. Right? Nothing that they're asking for is good for Pharaoh. No. Nothing. Not right? What, other people are going to ask for a little vacation to go to the Sinai and hang out and, right, have a fertility party to their, to their God? Another better God? Right. And Gujame, like, uh, am I not the, the God, the big God, the be all end all here? Hello? 
Lots of problems here for Pharaoh. So you've paid no heed. So here's what Yudhevavhe says: By this shall you know that I am. And what does your translation say next? That I am what? The Lord. Ah, interesting. Because the Hebrew is, by this shall you know that I am yud hey vav hey. Right? No terms here. There's no. It's not Adonai, Adoni. There's no, you know, there's no lordness here. By this shall you know that I am yud hey vav hey. Hine, behold. When there's hine, right? My translation of that is yo. All right, like heads up, something's coming. I will strike with the rod that is in my hand the water of the Nile, and it will be turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile will die. Why is that important? Food source, food supply. This is the luxury of Egypt. Fish were the luxury of Egypt. They are known for it. It's a delicacy. So it's not just, it's not like the wheat crop, you know, that they make their bread from. This is, this is going to hurt whom? Who eats delicacies? And the ruling class. This is hitting at the power sources in Egypt, their food supply, not the people. Right? This is going after caviar. <laughs> right? Literally. All right, so what's going to happen then? The Nile will stink so that the Egyptians will find it impossible to drink the water of the Nile. This hits the people. The fish hits the ruling class. The water hits everybody. What else is the water of the Nile? What else does it do? It sure does. Egyptian agriculture does not depend on rainfall. It depends on irrigation. The overflow of the Nile, the flooding of the Nile, is what irrigates the crops. This is why, P.S., there's food in Egypt in our stories when there's a famine in Canaan. When there's a famine in Canaan, what happens? Everybody pushes down, not just our family in the story, everybody pushes down into northern Egypt. Because when there's no rain, you have no food. But in Egypt, it's not dependent on rain. As long as the Nile overflows, their crops are irrigated. So there's food there when there's not in <clears throat> All right. So God, oh, sorry, 19, someone want to read? And Adonai said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and hold out your arm over the waters of Egypt, its rivers, its canals, its ponds, all its bodies of water, that they may turn to blood. There shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as Adonai commanded. He lifted up the rod and struck the water in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and his courtiers, and all the water in the Nile was turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But when the Egyptian magician priests did the same with their spells, Pharaoh's heart stiffened, and he did not heed them as Adonai had spoken. Pharaoh turned and went into his palace, paying no regard even to this. And all the Egyptians had to dig round about the Nile for drinking water, 
because they could not drink the water of the Nile. Go on. When seven days had passed after Adonai struck the Nile, Adonai said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Adonai, Let my people go that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, then I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs, and they shall come up and enter your palace, your bedchamber, and your bed, the houses of your courtiers, and your people, and your ovens, and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you, and on your people, and on all your courtiers. All right. Notice there is a warning before every plague. If you look at a deep analysis of the plague narrative, it is incredibly intricate how it works. It is three, three, and one. There's warning, 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 no warning, no warning, no warning. I mean, Moses, 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 Aaron, Aaron, Moses says, Aaron does, Moses says, Aaron does, Aaron does. There's an incredible architecture and symmetry to the plague narrative. I don't want to spend time on it, but know that it's not random. It's not just one thing after another ten times. There is a very deep architecture and symmetry to the plague narrative. Um, you might find it interesting, as do I, um, that in the uh, ancient world there is a text that has been uncovered, a Sumerian text, about the goddess Inanna, in which she tells of three plagues that she brought upon the world. In the first, she turned all the waters of the land into blood. As usual, this doesn't fall out of nowhere, these texts. It's taking the themes, the motifs of the region and using them, reconstructing them <laughs> to send a new message. It's not, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like we tend to look at this and go, oh, the water turned to blood. What is that about, right? It's a motif of the region. This is a story told in Mesopotamia and in Egypt. So, so if, if Inanna did it, well, you and Ayvave can do it too, right? It's, that's important for us to remember whenever we want to judge these as, you know, however we judge things in our ethnocentricity. Um, we also see other places where water outside of the Nile becomes red like blood in someone's cup. So, so it seems to be about the water, not just about the Nile, but of course their water comes from the Nile, so it's related. Um, why is the first plague about the Nile? And why, the, why would this metaphor of blood in the Nile by Yudhe to get at Pharaoh, why is that particularly beautiful in its reconstruction? Point to the killing of the firstborn in the Nile. Beautiful. I read a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to be you, you read below the line, didn't you? You've been reading commentary over there, Laura. Um, good for you. Right? So, to take a motif that's already in the region, right, makes sense. You know, Inanna did it, it's happened in other, you know, tales and whatever. Um, Yudhe does it. What happens in the reconstructed version? What happens is there's a story about taking little innocent Jewish life, Jewish, okay, that's an anachronistic term, Hebrew life, and drowning, killing it in the Nile. 
What do we get as the first comeuppance to Pharaoh for not rectifying that situation by freeing them? That same source of life that he wanted to make a source of death becomes polluted with blood. You put the blood of Hebrew babies in the water, you won't rectify that? Watch what happens, says the God of justice. Watch. You wanted blood in the water? You put blood in the water? You got it. An eye for an eye. There you go. So, poetic justice. And it is Moses who was saved out of that water who does the justice job. Of course. The agent of that justice was placed himself in the Nile. To drown. To For Pharaoh, it would have been to drown. He's placed in the water because that edict had been given and his mother could no longer keep him because it would have been defying the royal edict. So she puts him in the Nile, which turns out to be the source of his deliverance. That is the person who will be the agent of Yudhebhavhe's justice. It's a beautiful, beautiful, poetic, amazing, symbolic story that is really powerful about the things that are supposed to destroy us when we have help from people who love us and see forward and take risks and defy what everyone says is reality and has to be we are saved so so is this the derivation of the saying there's blood in the water I I don't think so. I think that's from sharks. <laughs> right? If, if there's blood in the water, you, you draw the predators who will then come finish the, the business. Okay. The, it's dinner. So blood in the water, I think, is about, uh-oh, you know, like, yeah. indicating that there's going to be a feeding frenzy, <laughs> I think. Um, but, so for me, this is what we miss at Passover that I long for is a return to appreciating right the many levels of the narrative of the exodus from Egypt. Right? We skip over the dams, don't lick your pinky, right? So it, it just kind of for me like it loses right some of the, the the beauty of the narrative of so we went to that you know that we can be saved from what everyone assumes must happen because Pharaoh said so. But then it doesn't stop there. If we're truly saved by these people who risk for us, who believe in us, who believe it can be different and, and put us on the water and we are somehow drawn out by someone out of compassion and love and protection that they give us and, and we become this, this young, healthy, amazing person, right? It doesn't stop there for us. That is what gives us the potential to then challenge the forces that are and that everyone assumes it must be this way because Pharaoh said so, and it results in redemption. We are all Moshe. So for me, we somehow distance ourselves from this story as silly, you know, as the retributive, angry God. And I think we just, we miss the poignancy and the beauty of the message of the story. So we're not going to walk through the rest of the plagues. I want us to pay attention to what happens when 
Pharaoh's courtiers can affect the same business. What does Pharaoh do? Look at verse 23. Pharaoh turned mm-hmm. and what did he do? And went into his palace, paying no regard even to this. <clears throat> and what happened for the Egyptians? And all the Egyptians had to dig round about the Nile for drinking <coughs> water, drinking water. Because, because they could not drink the water of the Nile. All right. So, and in a week, this goes on. Pharaoh turns his back and walks into the palace. Right? So we've gotten his heart is strengthened. He doesn't shma. He doesn't listen. He doesn't hear. He turns his back and he walks into the palace. Right? So this, this continues to be the response of Pharaoh. And what we get is he begs for relief, right? When the frog situation gets really disgusting and dangerous, right? Imagine all those rotting corpses and like, ugh, right? So um, he asks Moshe and Aaron to intercede, to intervene. And then um, he asks for relief. And so in some ways he begins to acknowledge at least that Moshe and Aaron have a connection to this Yudhe business that's starting to be evident um, that he has to start to deal with them. He's got to start to negotiate with them, right? So uh, we see this happen and then the courtiers try to do the same thing. When we get to the vermin and the lice, they try to replicate the same thing and they can't. So the, ga- the ante's upped. Now they can no longer keep up with Yudhe and pull the same tricks. So look at chapter 8, verse 15. The magicians begin to turn on Pharaoh and say, Exba Elohim he. This is the finger of Elohim. They don't say Yudhe Elohim. This is the Exba of Elohim, the finger of God. But what happens with Pharaoh? Yechazek lev pa'o. The heart of Pharaoh is strengthened. When you see Elohim rather than deny or something. Yeah. What what does that mean? Very interesting question. In source criticism, you know, when we look at where the source of all of this comes from, the Elohist is one of the sources. There's the Yahwist and the Elohist, called in the source criticism literature J and E. J meaning Yahweh because the Christians mispronounced it. Um, I won't go into why, even though it's tempting. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna curb my <laughs> desire to go there. Um, but but the J in Latin, right, is Y. So the Yaoist is J, the Eloist is E. Normally, um, it's understood to be northern and southern sources that then kind of get pulled together. So that's one way we look at it. Sometimes it seems yud he vav is used if an author has to, is going to choose from both, um, chooses yud he vav when it's about mercy and compassion. And chooses Elohim when it's the God of justice. But this is the, the Egyptian priests. 
But the right, so the narrator is choosing to put in the Egyptian priest's mouth the name Elohim, possibly because it's a plural. What they know is a pantheon, right? So Elohim is technically in Hebrew plural. So we read it Elohim capital E, but possibly if it's Pharaoh's magicians, it's Elohim little e. Their gods, their pantheon seems to be pretty powerful, right? So, you know. And what happens again? Velo shama alehem. He didn't hear them. He didn't listen. He didn't heed them. Kasher diber Adonai, as God, as Yudhe had spoken. Pharaoh refuses to hear Yudhe Vavhe and the and heed the the message. This goes on and on and on, as we know, until the very end of the whole business, which is what? How's it all come to a final head? The 11th plague. So what would you suggest should be done at Pesach instead of the quick routine there? What would you... Ay, ay, ay. Really, Sarah? Really, you want that? What From the point of view of the Egyptians, the closing of the the waters after the Israel. Ah, nice. So you're calling the... The coming in of the waters and the smashing of Pharaoh's army, the last plague. Very interesting, Reuben. Well, I would have said it, it because you brought it up earlier. It, it, it's a bookend to the first one. It starts with the waters of the Nile and, and the story of Moses, and it ends with what sort of a reflection of the killing of all the, the Jews. It's the, the firstborn, so it's, it's, it's a bookend to that. Pharaoh who condemns baby boys to death has been given nine opportunities, nine catastrophes, disasters, to change a system that is that cruel and that tyrannical and that awful and hasn't. And when we allow injustice and tyranny to continue inevitably says our story, inevitably says our wisdom tradition, inevitably it will come back to bite you the exact same way you've inflicted on the powerless and the oppressed. Exactly the same way. It has to be the death of the Egyptian firstborn. It has to be. How else can this story end? Because the message is what you do out there, what you, the damage, the destruction, the suffering that you inflict, if you do not change your ways, America 2015, listen up. It will come back to destroy your own house. And if we miss that, we've missed the point, I think. We've missed the point of the story. We've missed the power of the message. And at Pesach, I'm concerned that we have lost the power of the message of we are supposed to identify with the oppressed. 
as we sit around our expensive catered meals, eating off our beautiful china, making beautiful pesadica sponge cakes. <laughs> How moist and spongy can you get, matzo? <clears throat> that was a competition in my family. Huh? Right? Mama Faye, of course, always had the best sponge cake. I will be clear. Faye Bernstein. One hands down every time. But it's it's a very long conversation that maybe we'll have around Pesach. Maybe I'll schedule a, a class for us to kind of talk through it because it really it's become really hard for me to myself to celebrate it, you know, to really dig in it. It's it's hard. And I'm afraid of what we're losing. I'm, I'm truly afraid of what we're losing. And, and I'm, I'm giving you a hand up that, that we'll get at an example of it. But um, but let's let, maybe we'll talk around Pesach. This is not in that direction. Uh-huh. But I'm just wondering, in light of what's going on in France, and I've been reading um, about the exodus from France and the call to Israel, and I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about that. Say more. Um, I've been reading about the, the, the sort of question is, should the Jews of France leave and go to Israel? You know, I don't know. Um, it's but for I'm them reading, to know. Right. I, um, <laughs> but I've just been reading horrifying accounts. I mean, I've known from the media that the past several years, anti-Semitism has been rising in France, yada, yada. But I'm starting to read specifics that I haven't known before and it's horrifying. And and it's it's the unfortunately repeated experience of the Jewish people. Right? This is this is not new. We liked to think, a lot of us who grew up in the shadow of the Shoah, a lot of us liked to believe that was the final battle. And it was decided and determined there. Never again. Right, and that we were going to make sure never again, but for sure Europe got it, for sure the world got it. Finally, next week we're showing this film, The Jewish Cardinal, because um, I've been asked to respond, so I had to watch it. Um, um, but anyway, you know, like looking at that. Looking like at, at church, you know, folks who were setting up crosses at Auschwitz because it was their catastrophe. You know, it was their people who suffered, and it's just kind of like, like, just it's such alternate realities. It's like they had no clue about the Holocaust, none. Is it willful denial? Whatever. But I, it, we think it's over. We think it's done. We think it was decisive. It wasn't. I mean, I wish I had more to say, but it's not new. It's not, there's nothing unique here. Now everyone says, oh, what's unique is that it's radical Islam. Really? Radical religion or fascists, really? It doesn't seem to make a difference. Everyone's unified that you can kill the Jews, right? It's like, it doesn't seem to make a difference whether it's driven by religion or something else. And it's, it's anti-Semitism. It's been around forever. It's you know the disease that just doesn't seem to die, and what we can do is make sure that we are that we are facilitating the Jews who want to leave getting out, and that we are making sure we are supportive of a strong Israel and a strong American Israel alliance. 
it should never come up again in a conversation. What should they do? Halavite should only be in our time. Look at Aviva Zorenberg. text from Ramban, not Rambam. We're used to seeing Rambam, right? Maimonides. This is Nachmanides. And Aviva Zornberg brings, who you know I think is one of the, the Gedolium of our time, one of the genius, true genius teachers of our time. She brings a text on your left hand page, and I'm so good at the copier that I have chopped off the page numbers. So I can't give you it. Staple at the bottom left corner. Thank you. The page with the staple at the bottom left corner. It the text begins here you have not listened. The text in the middle from Ramban, right? Here you have not listened. So this is what we were talking about. Lo shama, right? The, the Pharaoh didn't hear. He didn't heed. He didn't listen. Because God was about to inflict the first plague upon him. He told him that his wickedness was to blame, that he did not listen to the commandment of his creator. Now Pharaoh did not tell them explicitly that he would not listen or set them free, except for the first time when he said back in chapter 5, who is God? Who is this yud heh that I should listen to him to set Israel free? He did not reprove them, but listened to their words in silence. Going back to, I know it's confusing, but this text that we just looked that that we just saw, that we just read, that's what that, that's what Ramban is looking at. He listened to their words in silence, for he was afraid of the plagues from the time that they performed the wonder of the alligator that swallowed the Egyptian staffs. In the first plagues, he had his magicians attempt to duplicate their acts to prove that these were merely witchcraft. So in fact, he was afraid and reacted to fear by strengthening himself. That is the meaning of Vayichazek Lev Paro, that Pharaoh's heart was strengthened. All right, so what is the kernel here like that she brings, or, or one that I find fascinating, is that it was out of fear that Pharaoh decides to, right, to, to toughen up, right? When we get afraid, what is our first response? Run. <laughs> For some of us, the first response is run. For others of us, what is the first response? Fight. One of your kids, yeah, right, right, right. So it's to prepare to fight. There's, there's fight or flee, right? The first or cooperate. New science is telling us, fight, flee, or cooperate. So um, cooperate, not there for Pharaoh. Flee, not possible for the ruler of the greatest empire of the world, right? Pharaoh. His, his response, he's a man used to having what he wants, used to having his way, having all the power at his fingertips. Pharaoh strengthens, right? Internally takes a position of strengthening in order to, very interesting, a little different from stubbornness, which is what we tend to go to. 
I think it's interesting that Ramban lifts up the fact that actually a lot of the people we see being so <laughs> right bullish are often cowards. Cowards. Fearful. They're fearful. It's a well-known psychoanalytic exactly. interpretation. They are most they are the ones who are most afraid. That is not how we tend to think of Pharaoh. I think it's a very interesting analysis of Pharaoh's character. So let's go to what Aviva Zorenberg says. The hypothesis that the wonders and the plagues are merely witchcraft provides Pharaoh with the source of courage and resilience. Witchcraft, after all, as a number of Midrashim point out, is almost a cottage industry in Egypt. The peculiarity of these early episodes between Moses and Pharaoh is the speechlessness of Pharaoh's defiance. He listened to their words in silence. She's quoting Ramban. His resistance is passive. In the final analysis, such a listening is equivalent to not listening. In his silent obduracy, he expresses the meaning of, quote, not listening, non-listening, Ramban presents Pharaoh as refusing language. Fear freezes him in a catatonic silence. He does not express even resistance to God's word. The medium is the message, a deaf and dumbness, and acts a moral autism. <laughs> the media is the message. The way he engages becomes reality, becomes what happens, and he walls off from even the suffering of his own people. The words of his own magicians going, you know, <laughs> we can't do this business that this Yudhei guy is doing. Right? We, his officers who turn on him later. Pharaoh becomes, in the beautiful, amazing words of Aviva Zorenberg, morally autistic. That's an amazing phrase. Is she the first one to use that? I mean, it's I bet it's so her to like come up with these genius things. It's like what? I mean, we could spend another hour talking about moral autism, couldn't we? She's saying he's in a trance space. You know that that feeling like you're out of your body. You just can't. That kind of catatonic, like inability to paralyze. You're so scared. You just sort of get this out of body experience, which becomes either the action is observed or the inaction becomes interpreted by everyone else as just resisting, refusing, or you don't care. Right. He doesn't really know what to do. What could he do? <laughs> because how, how, could, how could a pharaoh be powerless and catatonic in the face of another force? Because that would be impossible to think that he could be. Right? So he must, he must be, therefore, uncaring and stiff-necked and... and so let, let I want to stay with these. I want to stay with these images. They're great, and I think it's it's where she goes. I love this. Um, and and Laura, you said something too about. I know, to, to David's point about um, kind of splitting off. There's there's at simultaneously a kind of you know you you disassociate. You get so afraid you disassociate, and yet in that kind of splitting off, kind of leaving your body that you talked about in a way. Then we become more densely 
Right? It's this it's this weird thing. As we disassociate, we don't get lighter. Frozen. We get right as we disassociate, as we kind of separate from our bodies and go to this alternate reality because we're so terrified or whatever, our bodies become um lahefech, the opposite. More dense, more rigid, more right? Set in stone. Set in, and this is, of course, what she's bringing up is the imagery becomes the hardening of the heart. But the, the people on the outside don't see what's going on in the inside. They perceive how they perceive. <laughs> this is the gorgeousness of looking at the character Pharaoh, I think, right? Is Of course, everyone else assumes he's so tough he doesn't care about Moses. He's not intimidated. He doesn't care about the people either. He doesn't. He isn't even. Right. So that's everybody else's perception. They have no idea what's going on on the inside. And isn't this? Isn't this what we always do? Well, he's human. He knows he's human, and this power is uh, greater than human. It's uh, greater power. So that's why he's scared. He, right? He knows he's, he's, he God, knows he's up he, against the real thing. Right. Right? Or power. And we always assume, I had a great teacher who said, um, we judge our insides by other people's outsides. So when I look at people, I assume, wow, they have it all together. <laughs> and I am a mess because I know what's going on on the inside and what a struggle it is, right? To get the mascara on and get out the door in time. And everyone else seems to be able to do this life business so easily, right? But we, we always assume we know from looking at somebody on the outside what's going on on the inside. And of course, we don't have a clue what's going on on the inside, which I think is this wonderful analysis by Zormer. Also, and our scholar and our scholars throughout history, by the way. God is, if I understand what you're saying correctly, God is saying to Pharaoh, the system that you are, the only out for Pharaoh would be to change and become completely ethical and change the entire system that the economy of Egypt relies upon. All of his money and power, everything that all the goods that flow to him are based on a slave. It's like our integration issues, should we say, or something. It's like it's easier to say, no, no, we're going to just keep on going. We're going to close the gates and close the borders so we get to keep what we have. Right. America, the Western developed world 2015. If we don't pay attention to the story, truly, I'm a holy roller this way, and I own it. If we don't pay attention to the message of this story, we are doomed. I'll just say it that simply. Yes. You cannot continue to support your lifestyle on the backs of the third world. And at some point, there's a tipping point. And it's going to be us in the chariots. It's, it's that simple. All right. So, Lisa... It looked like you were pointing to a piece of text that you'd like us to read. Would you read that, please? When you want me to start with a grammatical comment right there? Yeah. In a grammatical comment, Rashi gives us a lightning sketch of a pharaoh who absorbs the black energy of Nathan into himself so that he has become its very embodiment. 
dense, impenetrable, speechless, and he betrays no flicker of response. He is impacted in silence. God has foretold that it would be so, that Pharaoh would not listen to you. In this reading, this means more than he will not do as you wish. It indicates a growing willed incapacity to hear and to speak. Okay, good. Take it. Take that next paragraph, please. In a brilliant reading. In a brilliant reading. Hi, Emek Davar. Thank you. In fact, it suggests <laughs> that God here sketches the whole progress of the plagues. The day will come when Pharaoh will literally refuse to listen to you. Before that, before the plague of the firstborn. On that day, Pharaoh says, Do not see my face, and dismisses Moses in anger. That overt anger and verbal rejection will represent a crack in Pharaoh's impermeable silence. The hardening process receives its fatal setback in this final moment of explosive fury, which leaves him suddenly vulnerable in pain. To pain. Pharaoh as refuser? Non-porous, inaccessible, blocked by fear, and subject, subject of the... Ora Chaim's. Description to... Read his description. Okay. Pharaoh's heart. heart has become heavy. He is not sufficiently affected even to respond negatively to the play, to the play. So God has to explain to Moses the meaning of his silence. He has closed up his heart. He refuses to set the people free. It's just, it's so incredible. So, these words she uses, dense, impenetrable, speechless, and that grows, right? So much so that it becomes adjectival, she says. So, somebody who always acts in a way, right, of peace, of wholeness, of serenity, right? What do we call them? Peaceful people, right? In other words, how we behave at some point comes becomes adjectival of us. It becomes who we are, right? So, because we skipped Rashi's actual, it's okay. So in the grammatical comment of Rashi, what is Rashi's grammatical comment? If you refuse to set them free, if you are a refuser, this form of the verb, ma'ain, is adjectival, where a person is described by his acts, like shaket, quiet, shalev, peaceful. It's a form of the verb that isn't that you're doing it, you're being quiet, you're described as shaket, a quiet person, right? You are it. You are it. There's a point at which... Your behavior defines you. And that's the form of the verb. So Rashi looks at the grammar as a, as a drash. That it's deeper than, why is it, we just skip over the grammar. Okay, he's becoming a refuser. No. Rashi says, stop, look at that. He's not just acting and saying no. He has become a refuser. That's different. Says Rashi, pay attention to that. And so she unpacks it, Zorenberg unpacks it, and looks at Ha'emek HaDavar for another, and the Orachayim, all exploring the same kind of thing that Pharaoh starts to become a person of hardened, a, he starts to become a person with a heart of stone. 
he begins to solidify, right? Um, and and then there's nothing. There's 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 no response. He's a refuser. He's a he's shut down. He's impenetrable, non-porous, inaccessible, blocked by fear. This is the true hardening. It starts with him yechazeking his leg. It starts with him strengthening his leg, taking that posture, and it results in a process that then it ossifies Pharaoh. terrifies them, we have death camps mm-hmm. right. and Zyphon B gas. Right. That, the, the, the reaction is in proportion to... And especially when they have access to power. Yeah. Right. Yes. And to controlling the situation. Right. And so if we just so forget sometimes the... And, and I don't want to be... This, this is also a very psychodynamic interpretation sure. because you sure. can think of a person or a family or a community of course. or a society that's enclosed, ossified, impermeable circle. And what happens and to those people's hearts and ability to feel and be open to the possibility of pain, right? It's tragic. Of course. And have been challenged and get super shut down the way he did. And that's when they're really no, And in order to yeah. make a hole in the circle, it needs something in from the inside of the circle or something on the outside of the circle to because the circles get so close. Hmm. All right. I want to do one more piece of business here before you do a little piece of another thing. Because um, I want to go back. So the next topic that we're not going to cover from Zorenberg, if you look down, um, it says Pharaoh, the unbearable lightness of being. Right? So she's going to go on. I didn't bring it to you, but you can, of course, buy the book and read it on your own. You should. Um, she's going to go on to talk about that the possibility of kalut, of lightness, is what terrifies Pharaoh. That he looks light, 
before this yud hey vav hey business all of a sudden, right? He's never had to negotiate. He's never had to confront mortality. He's going to live forever as a god when he's buried in that huge pyramid that stands as a, you know, pointer to his now being risen as a god in the afterworld, right? So he, he becomes through all of this more and more terrified by the possibility of being light. And so what does he do? He becomes more and more dense, more and more impermeable. And what is a Hebrew word that describes that? Stone. Yes. We go to the Hebrew root. Kaf, vet, dalet. Kaved. Heavy. He becomes more and more kaved. To hold on to what he's In response to the possibility of the opposite. Right? That he's truly a lightweight. So he becomes more and more heavy. A stone heart is heavy. So, Kaveh, in doing that, what does he claim more and more to be? He claims more and more to be a being of Kavod, of honor, of glory. Who do we use this term of? God. He digs more and more into this aspect of being godly. He's so dense and so heavy that he becomes stuck. He becomes stuck. And I know that looks like, oh, what a modern term. It's not. He's stuck. This word is the same word used this way when his chariot wheels are in the mud. They get kaved. They get stuck. So, so I love the play that she goes to on this, the dual aspect of heavy. It is both what we say of God, that God has weight. God matters in the world. We use the word kavod of God. God's kavod, God's glory, God's magnificently intensified presence in the world. Yes, and the, the other side of that is heavy in a way that means stuck. And which is it? So, is he becoming more fearful? 100%. No, I mean, is he, is he now, when you use heavy... Is it also more dangerous as, as you get to that point? There's some point at the end when you just lash out and kill. You know, that, that's the message. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely part of it. But that's the danger. That's what happens. He is going to lash out, isn't he? And he's going to lash out, and his chariot wheels are going to be the undoing of him. They get stuck. And the waters crash on top of him, and he is, of course, destroyed. So the guy who killed Rabin was an Lovely, yeah, wow. Orthodox and stuck. Wow. And could not be flexible enough to consider some kind of peaceful way out. And so tied up in knowing that he was on the side of God. Of Abode of God, so on the side of God that he had the right to do what he did, and then that becomes, of course, stuck and brings 
complete destruction to the possibility of peace. That's what happens. This is true for all time. Let's go to, I just want to share this one thing with you. I think it's so great to pull it into our times. Go to the part that starts Vaera. The link to this will be on the podcast. Um, but I want to drop down to the paragraph that says, we can understand this in contemporary terms, right? So this is also dealing with Nachmanides' reading of the hardening of Pharaoh. Somebody read it, we can understand this in contemporary terms. We can understand this in contemporary terms when we recall moments of feeling as if we have no choice in a particular circumstance. There are times when we lock ourselves into certain situations and patterns of relationships feeling that we really have no other choice. Is this ever really true? In a sense, we abdicate our ability to make a choice because we fear it may cause suffering or a level of discomfort we do not wish to experience. And sometimes our inaction is simply the nature of habitual response that blinds us to new possibilities and prevents us from truly exercising our own free will. Lest we want to say this is just about the pharaohs. Or the crazies, or the, right? Let us not forget the message to every single one of us who say, I have no choice. I had no choice but to, really? Really? Is that really ever true? I had no choice? I was only following orders. <laughs> or I was following orders or right I had I had no other option but to really or is the real translation because any other option would have meant what loss of face change change sharing my control the thing is that the answer that you realize we're going to anyway so he had a choice. It's like he could have made the choice to let the people go. And in the in the history, he would have been a hero. We could decide, yeah, since it's going to happen anyway. And probably the thing you're worried about is going to happen to you anyway. So funny you should say that, Linda, because the next piece I gave you <laughs> from My Jewish Learning by Evan Wilkenstein from American Jewish World Service, talks about stuff that's probably going to happen anyway. But we don't pay attention to what might we do differently so that it doesn't have to go down so badly. I think, is that part of what you're saying, Linda, is that they were going to leave anyway. Pharaoh had some choice about how that went down. It can go down. This can be, I say to my daughter, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. But you're getting in the car seat. <laughs> do, do you remember when they would go rigid like a plank? <laughs> like this? Like that's going to stop me from getting you in the car seat. Right? You're taking the antibiotic. This can go easy or this can go hard. And that is completely up to you. You have complete control here. <laughs> you are completely in control of how this goes. You have this choice. Or this. That's exactly right. So going going back to the conversation that you were saying about should should 
Jews be leaving France or staying. I know I, I have a friend who is nearing 90, who's a Holocaust survivor, lived in Poland, middle class to upper class family. And she was telling me the conversations that her parents were having around the dinner table in Lvov, in um, Ludge, in the 1930s about this is what's happening in Germany and we're hearing bad things and should, what should we be doing? And this lady put it this way. Her uncle was a pessimist. So he took his family and went to Palestine. Her father was an optimist, stayed in Lodge. And it, but for her, I believe God. Paula, so, uh, you have got to turn that message, my friend, around for us, because you cannot leave us with the optimists all get wiped out. I'm sorry. Yeah. I lay that to you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. This is why I get paid the big bucks, right? Because it's going to get laid at my feet. So, I would suggest we be optimistic realists and take seriously the warning signs around us. And rather than gushry and get crazy, can we get motivated? Can we get active? Can we start doing something so that it doesn't have to go down? Why do we have to wait until there's absolute environmental devastation? Before we act. Why? Because we're Pharaoh. Because it's human nature. Until it's in my house, until it's my firstborn that dies, I am too afraid to change, to let go, to give up some of my power, some of my control, some of my privilege, some of my comfort, some of my wealth, whatever, fill in the blank. Until it's in my home and touches me and my family then and only then when it's destruction in my own backyard do I go, oh, it's inevitable, <laughs> right? And did it have to be? Right. So I, I do, we define how it's going to go down, right, on, on some level, which I think is a really important piece by American Jewish World Service about the ways that we don't want to look, about the ways that we don't want to hear, we don't want to deal um, with so many things in this world that you just pick up a newspaper <laughs> we, and we don't want to know. And I get it. I, and and my question for us this Shabbat is, so, so what is it we need to do, right, to become optimistic realists who are ready to, like, face at least some degree of willingness, responsibility for change and for giving up some of our, oh, we get so caveed that we get stuck how do we move more into this sense of kavod, of weightiness that means it's weighty enough that I need to respond and I need to stay flexible and open and hopeful enough to be willing to move into that change. Which issue are you referring to now? You cannot trap me, David. You cannot trap me. Are you talking about France? Are you talking about the environment? Are Pick one. Pick one. A long list. Pick one. Sudan. Ebola. Pick one. I was on a conference call yesterday with a woman from France, uh, which is a large call, actually, about 300 people on the call. 
and uh, the Charlie Hebdo, but this issue of is there a moment when finally France wakes up? Mm-hmm. Because they can ignore the Jews forever. Mm-hmm. You know, they, oh, another violent, another terrorist act. I mean, that there is a apparently a, uh, a plan in France to have a proposal in eight days to decide how France is going to react. And her point at the end was, if they choose to react, it's hopeful. If not, pick up your ticket to Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. And that was as stark as you could get. Who's they in this situation? The Jews in, in, in France. Pick up your ticket to Tel Aviv. How? France does not pick up the action. Do the, the what they need to do to wake up. The government? The government. Right. And it's, you know... Well, so it's on the individual level. You know, I don't want to pick up a newspaper and read about what's happening to folks who don't have clean water to drink and their babies dying. I don't want to know about that, right? So that we turn away on an individual level to so many of the issues in our world because it touches our own whatever. It means I have responsibility then for my the ways I participate in allowing that to happen. And as a world community, we do it, right? When we say, you know, the big discussion is Iran, Right now, you know, do we? I just watched this fat, this great show, um, the Warwicker trilogy, and you know, the the British Prime Minister character has been funneling money, you know, off of a lot of stuff into a secret account for when he's no longer um, Prime Minister, and like he's kind of villainized. You think he's the villain in the, and our guy's gonna bring him down, and then at the end, he delivers this amazing speech, this amazing monologue um, about. Because y'all are too lazy to act. And you can condemn me siphoning off money, you know, but I've put it in an account because I take seriously, I'm a patriot, and I take seriously the threat of Iran that you all refuse to deal with, right? And I'm the only one with the vision and the courage, and I'm realistic enough to know somebody's going to have to do it, and it's going to cost billions. And it was just kind of like this, like, wait, what? Maybe he's not such a villain anymore. And because... And I'm, I'm not saying I'm taking position one way or the other. I'm saying I think there are issues that the world community better wake up and deal with before it's too late. What program is this? It's called the Warwicker Trilogy, PBS. and it was on like it was on PBS. Did you see it? No, I, I, I recorded. Go watch the third. It was really interesting because it challenged my own assumption about he's so corrupt and blah 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 blah. And then I thought, mm. you know, like. Yeah, and he's ready to do what... Are we ready to really take it seriously before it's too late? And I don't know the answers. I don't know any of the answers. I'm not pretending to. My job is to raise questions. (laughs) Thank God. I have the best job, I'm just here to say. right? My job is to lift up. Are we ready to ask some hard questions? And and what are our responsibilities vis-a-vis addressing, you know, writ small as well as writ large? And my friend... It will fall on your shoulders. The generation behind us, it falls on your shoulders. We have a lot of friends, though. <laughs> <laughs> to fix what, uh, what we haven't done so well. Halavaima, you be strengthened, a long, healthy, and happy life to do exactly that. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.